Well, good morning, Riverside. What a beautiful day for a church picnic. And, uh, you know, our first day to get to come in without the mask, see everybody's smiling faces. I feel kind of like William Wallace, freedom! <laughs> Praise God. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. And as you're turning there, just want to consider what Jason mentioned in the welcome, the fact that our bodies are wonderfully crafted by God, and he gave us five basic senses, our sight, smell, hearing, taste, and touch. And what a blessing they are, because they allow us to perceive and interact with the world around us. And we can, we can smell a rose, we can hear worship music, we can taste barbecue this afternoon, we can embrace one another. Um, which one did I miss? We can... Yeah, all of that. It's all good. We can see God's beautiful creation. And it's true what he said. If you ask people the sense that they would be most afraid of losing, hands down, is our sight. And the University of Chicago uh, Health Center did a study, and they said 70% of people said that is the one they would least want to lose. We depend upon our sight more than any other sense. And so... Some people will even say seeing is believing. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not. Um, this week the news was all abuzz with this story that an Italian artist sold an invisible sculpture for $18,300. I put a picture of it there on the right for you. Isn't it beautiful? What he doesn't know is I got one just like it at home and it's even better. And so... The artist, Salvatore Guara, he argued that his work of art isn't nothing. Instead, it's a vacuum. And so what did the buyer get for his money? A certificate of authenticity. Is that bogus or what? I wonder if the new owner is going to insure this thing against theft or loss or damage or I don't know. But the invisible statue is nonsense in my mind. It's not real. Yet there are other things that may be invisible, but they very much are real. They exist. Right now, this room is filled with telephone conversations. You can't see them, you can't hear them, but there's thousands of cell calls going through this room right now. And then there's hundreds of television stations being broadcast. There's data, there's music of all different genres from radio stations, all right here in this room, even though we can't see it. Do you believe that? You probably do, because we've experienced it. We know that if we have the right type of tuner, we can pick up those signals, and we can hear, and we can see what's going on. Yet, they're invisible. All of them are coming in on these electromagnetic waves that we can't see. And how many of you have, like, an invisible fence at home? Any of you got an invisible fence for your dog? You can't see it, but believe me, it's there. Your dog knows it's there. <laughs> He'll tell you. He doesn't have to see it to believe it. He's experienced it firsthand. So we, even though we rely on our senses, it's not always a perfect indicator of whether something is real or true or whether it exists or not. 
but take some of these things and go down to like a, a tribal community in the Amazon and try to explain to some of those people the idea of a cell phone or a television signal or an invisible fence. See, they've never experienced it. They're going to have a hard time getting their mind around it. They probably won't believe you, even though you know it's true. So, as much as we depend on our sight, it's not a perfect indicator of reality. And so... This morning, we're in our new series called Living Hope in the, in the books of 1st and 2nd Peter. And we just got started last week. We're only seven verses into it. And this week, the message title is The Certainty of Things Unseen. And we're going to cover chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. And I've broken it down into three parts for us. First of all, the certainty in verses 8 and 9. And then secondly, the prophecy in verses 10 and 11. And finally, the beneficiary in verse 12. And so, before we jump into it, I'll give you a moment to jot that down. I just want to recap what we covered last week in those first seven verses. Peter is writing this letter to a group of believers who've been driven from their homes and scattered across Asia Minor by persecution because of their faith. These Christians are suffering. They're suffering a difficult trial. And Peter writes this letter to them as an encouragement. And he reminds them of things that are true. And we saw last time that we have as believers an unimaginable glory that awaits us. God guarantees it. But he guarantees something else also. That right now we will suffer all kinds of difficult trials. Both glory and grief are guaranteed by God. The grief is temporary. The glory is eternal. And the Apostle Paul summed it up in 1 Corinthians 4.17 where he said, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Well, that's what we covered last time. So with that, let's pick it up in verse 12. And let's just read through this short text. It's only five verses. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of these things that have, been now, that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things." Well, I want to take it a section at a time, and I first want to look at the certainty in verses 8 and 9. Our Christian faith is built upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet, you and I have never seen him. And if you look at this in verse 8, it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We haven't seen the object of our faith. Do you struggle 
with the idea of an invisible God? Many people do. Do we struggle with the idea of an invisible God? I heard about a kindergarten teacher who asked her class to draw something, a little art project, and then she walked around the room and she checked in with each of them to see what they're drawing, and she went up to one little girl and she said, what are you drawing? And she said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the, and the teacher said, but dear, nobody knows what God looks like. And without missing a beat or even looking up from her drawing, she's drawing, she says, they will in a minute. She knew what he looked like, and she was drawing him. But we do not see God right now. He's invisible. Yet many of us love him and believe in him. How is that possible? How is it possible that we could believe in an invisible God? One word answer. Faith. Faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is the certainty of things unseen. I've never seen God, but I am fully convinced that he is exactly who he says he is and that he's done exactly what he said he has done. I will bet my life on it. I've already bet my career on it. I gave that up to be able to tell people about this certainty that we have. And this is what motivates me and drives me forward. It's the purpose for which I'm living I believe it is true, even though I have never seen it. And 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, We live by faith, not by sight. How can I be so sure? How can you be so sure of something we've never seen? Well, I want to point out four things that give us absolute certainty of this unseen thing that we believe in. Three of these are in this first section, and then the fourth one is in the, in the second section. So the first one is this, the testimony of creation. Creation's not invisible. You can look out the window and see it right now. It's all around you. And Romans chapter 1, verse 20 has this to say. I put the whole thing up here on the screen for you. It says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities. Say that with me. Invisible qualities. His eternal power and divine nature have been, say it, clearly seen. How? Being understood from what has been made so that men are what? Without excuse. Get that. His invisible qualities have been clearly seen so that men and women are without excuse. The fact is, whether you look through a microscope or you look through a telescope, you can see the handiwork of God. You can see a powerful and purposeful design in creation. Let me read you a little bit from Psalm 19. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. You can go out at night and look. We can see the world around us. And you know what? You don't, you don't even need a telescope or a microscope. You can see it with your bare eyes. Yesterday, I was sitting at my desk at home working on this message. And I'm looking out the window. And here comes this 
beautiful hummingbird right there at the feeder, just on the other side of the glass. I love these things. And I mean, they're amazing. They can fly. They can hover. They're so maneuverable. And yet they have such control. They're so precise. They're glorious. And they display the glory of God. And as I'm watching this, in the background, a blue jay is going back and forth in my yard, displaying a whole array of colors. It looked like it was hand-painted. And all of this is going on outside. And then an oriole comes up to the hummingbird feeder, and this thing is robed in colors of yellow and orange and black. And I'm just looking at this, I'm going, God, you are awesome. Your creation is magnificent. See, God's creation declares the glory of God. And that's why it's one of the first enemies, that, it's one of the first areas that the enemy wants to try and attack in our world and in our schools and in our culture. I think it can take greater faith to believe that all that you see is a cosmic accident. It takes more faith for an atheist than for us to believe that there is a divine creator and that in his magnificence he created all that we see. Creation declares the glory of God. If I ever come to a place where I have the slightest doubt in my mind, I just look around me and I'm just reassured. This is not a cosmic accident. This isn't an explosion. This is a magnificent design. Every detail of it. So we have the testimony of creation. Secondly, we have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Keep a finger in 1 Peter and turn forward just a couple pages to 1 John. And look what he writes. 1 John chapter 1. He writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. There's three of the senses right there. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The apostles were eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ, to his miracles, to his death, his burial, his resurrection. They saw it. They heard it. They were right there. And they recorded it for you and I so that we also might know. And the Bible has proven again and again and again to be historically accurate. Jesus is the focal point of all human history and there's overwhelming historical evidence for that. The apostles were eyewitnesses. Jesus' miracles, they proved beyond a shadow of doubt that he was none other than God in human flesh. And Jesus, Jason talked about this just last week. Jesus said, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe the things I'm saying, believe the miracles, believe the works that I do. Who else does this? Calming a storm, control over nature, over the natural world, over the spiritual realm, driving out demons, over life itself, raising a dead man up to life again. Nobody can do that but God himself. And so Colossians 1.15 says, He, Jesus, is the image, 
the visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, some will say, yeah, but the Gospels, they began as true accounts, but then they were embellished and exaggerated over the years to include these miracles. Kind of like a fish story that just kept getting bigger and bigger as it was told. But this cannot be the case. We talked about this in our men's recalibrate study yesterday morning. It cannot be the case because there was not enough time between the eyewitnesses who saw these miracles and the recording of the events in the Gospels and the Epistles. Thousands of eyewitnesses saw them. They were still alive when the Gospels were written. If that had been an exaggeration, they would have vehemently argued against it. That's not true, but they didn't. Even those who opposed Jesus did not deny the miracles that he did. We have the testimony of Jesus Christ, an historical Jesus Christ who died, was buried, and rose again. Third, we have the testimony of changed lives. This can include our own experience with God. We talked about how we can believe in things that we cannot see when we experience them ourselves. I have never seen God with my eyes. Yet I've experienced him. I've seen and felt the effects of God in my life and in the lives of people around me. I've, I've heard his voice speaking to my heart. And I'm not the only one. You're not the only one. There's the testimony of millions of people over 2,000 years who have had an amazing experience with the living God. And you can't deny that. These, these people have included everyone from kings to slaves, rich men to, to impoverished people, from artists to scientists, all walks of life, testify to an experience with the living God. Believers can experience God in a unique way. Look at the end of verse 8. It says, even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The joy of our salvation. We said that there's this unimaginable glory that awaits us. But the joy isn't just future. It's right now. Right now, we have an inexpressible joy even in the midst of difficult trials. You would think that trials would chip away at our faith, whittle it down to where we no longer believe. But the, the Bible says that they do just the opposite. They strengthen and refine and grow our faith. How could that be? Trials grow our faith. The reason is because we can experience God's power and his presence in the midst of the trials. Sometimes we can even see his purpose for those trials. They strengthen our faith. A lady from our church had been working through some really difficult trials with some unbelieving relatives. One of them even rammed her car in anger. And this happened just this past week, and it's, she's been praying, Lord, do I just need to cut these people out of my life? I've been praying for them, but nothing's changing. Am I doing something wrong that you're not hearing me? Is it something in my life? Show me, Lord. And the next morning, she went to breakfast with one of these family members. And as they went into a restaurant, another customer sitting at a table made eye contact. And she thought, well, maybe she recognized me or thinks she knows me. And they went and sat down, had their breakfast. And as they were getting up to go, 
that other woman called her over to her table. And she said this. She said, I just want you to know. Let me back up. She said, can I just tell you something? You have a look about you, and it's God. I just want you to know that God hears your cries. He's listening to you. I want you to know that I can see God on your face, and I just want to bless you today. Is that a coincidence? In the midst of these trials and with prayer, this woman says, I, a stranger, I want you to know, God hears your prayers. I can see him on your face. See, we experience inexpressible and glorious joy in the midst of severe trials. That's an experience with God. And what does it do to our faith? It strengthens it. It refines it. It hones it. Just like verse 8 says. So, the scattered, persecuted believers that Peter is writing to have never seen God, yet they had faith, strong faith. And the result was this inexpressible and glorious joy in the midst of trials. Many of you here this morning have this same kind of faith. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's Hebrews 11.1. 1. But just a few verses later, in verse 6, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Some of you here don't yet believe. You're skeptical. You might even wonder, why faith of all things? Why should salvation be based on something so intangible, so nebulous? Why can't it just be something I do to earn or demonstrate my salvation? Why faith? It's a, good, it's a good question. And the answer is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. And here's the reason, so that no one can boast. No one can boast. You see, faith is one human act which requires no work on our part. So we can't boast. We have to do something, but it's not a work. We have to believe. And so, as a result, we can't boast about what we did. We can only boast about what God has done for us. And let's face it, we like boasting. In our, in our, in our flesh, we like to brag about things. We're into one-upmanship. Always trying to do one more than the other person. We, we're into being number one, Right? I heard about a man from Texas who was driving a Volkswagen Beetle and he pulled up to a stoplight and alongside him was a Rolls Royce with Nevada plates. And they both had their windows rolled down. So the man from Texas hollers out, hey buddy, y'all got a phone in that Rolls? And the man says, well, yeah, I do. And he goes, oh, oh, I do too. And the man rolls, well, okay. And, and the Texan says, hey, hey you got a satellite receiver with television in that thing? And, and the man says, well, actually, I do. And the Texan in the Beatles says, me too, proudly. He boasts. And then he says, you got a double bed in that thing? And the man in the roll said, no, do you? And he goes, yeah, right here in the back. And then the light turns green and the Volkswagen Beetle drives off. 
Well, the man in the rolls is not going to be outdone by this man in a beetle from Texas. So he goes down and he takes the rolls into the shop to have it customized. And he has a double bed put in the back. Well, two weeks later, it's all ready to go. And he takes the rolls and he goes out around town looking for this beetle. He looks all over. He finally sees it pulled off along the side of the road. But the windows are all steamed up. And he feels kind of awkward as he gets out of his customized rolls. But he goes up and he taps on the foggy window. And it takes a little bit. But the Texan cracks the window and peeks out. And the, and the, and the, the man in the, from the rolls says, hey, buddy, you remember me? Check out the rolls. I got a double bed in the back. And the Texan says, you mean to tell me you got me out of the shower just to tell me that? (laughs) We're into one-upmanship, aren't we? That's just the way we are in our broken nature. But we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast. Imagine what heaven would be like. If we earned our salvation, we'd all be thumping our chests and talking about how great we are. That's not what God wants. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. Now, Maybe some of you would still say, well, if God wants me to believe in him, then he should stop hiding. And he should show himself to me right now. I mean, it seems so ridiculous to believe in an invisible God. Well, why doesn't God show himself? I mean, he's capable right? You believe that? He's capable. Why doesn't he just peer before us right now and prove that he's God? I think the reason is this. If you corner someone, then in desperation, they will say or do anything. I mean, God could stand over them in a really threatening way. He could hold a spiritual gun to their head. Tell me you love me. Believe in me. And mankind will say or do anything. To get out of that, see, but that's not the kind of response God's looking for. God is looking for a love response. He's looking for people who will realize their brokenness, their sinfulness. People who will realize that a loving God has taken a penalty for their ugliness upon himself. And then he's offering them forgiveness for asking He's looking for people who will respond in love, not because they're threatened, backed in the corner. See, the gospel is the perfect test of the human heart, and we must respond to it in faith. If you're a skeptic, allow me to just challenge you with one more point. Would it really make a difference if you could see God? Would it matter? Would you repent? right now and give your life to him and follow him as your Lord and Savior if you could see him? Maybe you say, yeah, yeah, I I don't think you would. Here's why. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself to the Israelites like no other people. Miracle after miracle, he delivered them from Pharaoh's slavery in Egypt. And then as they're they're going out into the desert, he parted the Red Sea for them. He brought manna, bread from heaven every morning. He brought water from the rock. In fact, he showed them his, uh, his very presence. It was a cloud by day that followed, that led them. It was a pillar of fire by night. They saw all this, and what did they do? 
They grumbled and complained. They turned away from him and built their own God out of, a, made a golden calf, something they could see, and they worshiped it instead. And God judged them for that. They didn't get to enter the land. They died there in the desert. And so another generation's raised up that saw God and the things he did, that saw just a manifestation of his presence. And they're getting ready to go into the promised land God had been telling them about. And they send in 10 spies who come back with a report. Who do they trust? They trust the 10 spies over God. You see, just because you could see God, it's not going to change a stubborn, prideful heart that does not want to submit to a loving God. It's just not. So I push back on the idea that if you could just see him, you would believe. I don't think so. You can't see God right now, but he's not hiding. He's not hiding from you. He says, if you really want to know me, if you genuinely seek me, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. God will reveal himself to you in an undeniable way. So that's a certainty that Peter is writing about. Let's look secondly at the prophecy in verses 10 and 11. It says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the times and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. This is a fascinating passage. It says that the Old Testament prophets, as they were penning these words of prophecy, it was revealed to them that this is speaking about a future Savior, but they didn't know the details, the circumstances, the timing. They must have been wondering, what is this exactly? When will this happen? How will it come about? They didn't know. Prophecy is simply this. Prophecy is history written in advance. It's God telling us what will happen before it does. It's his calling card. It's his way of validating, I'm God. I alone know the end from the beginning. And I'm telling it to you so that when you see it fulfilled, you will believe that I am who I say I am, the God of all eternity who exists outside of time. God alone does that. And his standard for the prophets, 100% accuracy. If anybody wrote, thus saith the Lord, and it didn't happen, boom, they were to be killed. God didn't want any false prophets amongst his people. So it's history written in advance. Page forward to 2 Peter chapter 1. And take a look at verse 21. 2 Peter 1.21. It says, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So these weren't the words of men, but of God. And notice they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now back in our text in verse 11, it says it was the Spirit of Christ. So which was it? Was it God? Was it the Holy Spirit? Was it the Spirit of Christ? Yeah, it was all of those. You see, 
It's an allusion to the Trinity, the triune nature of the Godhead that Jason spoke about just last week. If you want to jot it down when you get home, you can look up Romans 8, 9. Romans 8, 9 uses the phrase Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ interchangeably in the same verse. See, they're one and the same. And it's, it's pointing to our triune God. So in verse 11, it says the Spirit of Christ predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So where are these prophecies? Well, you'll find them throughout the whole Old Testament. Now keep in mind, the Old Testament was written between 1500 B.C. and 450 B.C. And it was in wide circulation several centuries before Jesus was even born. Keep a marker here in 1 Peter. And now I want you to turn to Psalm 22, right in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 22. This is too important to not see for yourself. This was written by King David a thousand years before Jesus was born. And the first words of this psalm are also the first recorded words of Jesus on the cross. You'll recognize them. It's almost like he's calling attention to this. So Psalm 22, we'll read some excerpts beginning in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my words, the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I am not silent. But I am, verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Verse 12. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. This is a vivid depiction of crucifixion but here's the thing. It was written a thousand years before Christ and 500 years before crucifixion was even invented. You can see all of his bones. His, his bones are out of joint. His hands and his feet are pierced. They're looking up at him. That's the suffering of Jesus Christ. But now look down to verse 27 where we see the glory. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. That's the glory. And the last words of this psalm. For he has done it. The Greek equivalent of that in the New Testament. 
is tetelestai. It's the last word of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. This psalm begins with his first words on the cross and it ends with his last words. And it's a vivid depiction of crucifixion a thousand years before he was born, 500 years before it was invented. I want to look at one more. You're very familiar with it, Isaiah 53. If you can turn there. Isaiah 53 was written by the prophet Isaiah around 700 B.C. And the entire chapter is a prophecy of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. Nobody have heard of such a crazy thing as a resurrection. Let's read some excerpts beginning in verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And, the Lord, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering... He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This is speaking about the sufferings of Christ from 700 B.C. And now look at the glory, verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Imagine Isaiah penning this psalm, this, this, this prophecy, or David penning Psalm 22 going, what is this talking about? This is a future savior. They pierced his hands and his feet. Isaiah, they, he was stricken by God. And now after dying and being put in a grave, he's going to see the light of life. This is so strange. But the spirit of God was speaking through them as they wrote these things. They knew it was speaking about a future savior, but they didn't know the time or circumstances. They longed to know. Even angels longed to know about these things. These aren't the only prophecies. There's 330, more than 330 specific prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. And scientists have proven that even 16 of them, the, the fulfillment of 16 of them by chance, is statistically impossible for any man to fulfill 16 by chance. And there's 330 of them. And it's not just prophecies on top of that. There's numerous events in the Old Testament that pointed specifically to Jesus. The Passover lamb, the manna from heaven, the scapegoat, the bronze serpent lifted up on a pole, the cities of refuge, the kinsman redeemer, Jonah in the belly of the whale. I believe you can find Jesus Christ in every single book of the Old Testament. Jesus on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection is talking to the two disciples that didn't know who he was. And they're all dejected. And so he went and he said, beginning 
with Moses and the prophets, he showed them that the entire thing is written about him. Wouldn't you love to have been there for that Bible study? See, we have a cert, we have a fourth reason to be absolutely certain about our faith in what we do not see. And that fourth reason is the testimony of fulfilled prophecy. Do you remember when Jesus told the parable, or maybe it was a real account, we don't know, of Lazarus and the rich man? They both died, and the rich man ended up in hell, and he was in torment, and he looked up and he saw Abraham and Lazarus at his side. And the rich man said, I beg you, Father, speaking to Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. That's a word for the Old Testament. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You think you'd change your mind by seeing God? Jesus himself said, you got Moses and the prophets. You have all the proof you need to know that God's word is true. If you're not going to believe that, you're not going to believe even if one rises from the dead. We have, to, we have to look at the evidence that God has revealed to us. We have overwhelming reason to believe in him. So we have the, the prophecy. Let's look finally at the beneficiary in verse 12. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that, were, that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Do you realize the privilege that you have of being on this side of the cross and the resurrection? The prophets had faith, but they didn't see the fulfillment of these prophecies. Look back at verse 10. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. And in verse 12, it was revealed to the prophets that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. You, you, you are the beneficiary of the prophets, of the fulfillment of the prophecy, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what you have is even better than if you had seen Jesus with your own eyes. You have fulfilled prophecy. Do you believe that's better? Peter, in his second letter, makes this very point. He talks about how they were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty when they were on the mountain of transfiguration and they saw him transfigured into his unveiled glory right before their eyes and they heard the voice of God the Father from heaven. They said, we saw it with our eyes and we heard it with our ears. But then in verse 19 of 2 Peter 1, it says this. It says, you have something even better. It says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, 
to which you will do well to pay attention. That's the ESV translation. You have something more sure than seeing him transfigured and hearing the voice of the Father. You have the completed, fulfilled word of prophecy. Isn't that fascinating? What a privilege you and I have. And, and God says you would do well to pay attention to it. Are you paying attention to it? Are you looking at what God has proven to us in the Old Testament? We're wrapping up. We began by saying that just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not true. It's not real. Peter says that these persecuted believers, he says of them, though you have not seen him, Jesus Christ, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what God wants for every one of you and me. He wants the salvation of our souls. Don't get hung up on the fact that you can't see God. You will see him one day. More than just see him, you'll bow before him. And you'll either bow in worship or you'll bow in judgment. God wants you to come to him now. He wants a love response from you. We don't need to see God to believe in him. We can look at the evidence. We can have a rock-solid faith. And we can be filled with this inexpressible and glorious joy, even in the midst of trials. We can be absolutely certain of the things unseen because of the testimony of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. We have the testimony of Jesus Christ, his miracles, including his resurrection, that prove he was God. And there's overwhelming historical accuracy in the Bible. We have the testimony of changed lives, yours, mine, some of the people around you, millions of people over 2,000 years from every walk of life, all saying the same thing. God has done something in my heart. I'm different. I have a new perspective. I have new motivations, new priorities. I've got inexpressible and glorious joy. You can't deny that. They've experienced it firsthand. And finally, if that's not enough, you have the testimony of fulfilled prophecy. The more sure word of prophecy. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have great reasons to be absolutely certain of the things unseen. You can keep your eyes firmly fixed on this unimaginable glory that waits you as you go through the trials of this life. And you can be filled with joy in the midst of that. If you don't have saving faith in Christ, it's not because you can't. It's not because you can't. It's because you won't. There's no excuse. You are without excuse. There's overwhelming reasons to believe even though you can't see God. As I said, you will see him one day. Don't wait any longer. Set aside your pride. Humble yourself and realize we're sinful. We don't meet God's righteous standard. He is holy, but he's not angry. He loves you. And he has taken that penalty on himself so that you might also be with him so that you might know him. It's the purpose for which he made you. 
Reach out to him in faith and he will forgive you and he will change your life. He'll fill you with the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God. And he'll give you a whole new perspective. You'll be filled with inexpressible joy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we sometimes sing the song that says, you are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever seen or heard. And our response to that, God, we stand in awe of you. Lord, I thank you that we're not a cosmic accident. We're the pinnacle of your creation. We're made in your image and we're made to know you. God, I thank you that you loved us and that you've gone to such great lengths to redeem us. Lord, help us keep our eyes fixed firmly on you. Fill us with the joy of our salvation. And may we join with all creation in declaring your glory. In Jesus' powerful name we pray, amen. <coughs>